Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. And hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 38. This is a first. This is going to be the first of a two-part interview that we're going to be doing. So episode 38 and episode 39 will be the same guest. I'll be talking today to John Eldridge, and I'm going to tell you more about him in just a moment. But first, while I want to remind you that there are several ways that you can help this podcast reach more listeners, continue to grow, uh, some simple ways are simply to share the episode with your friends and those who you think would be interested in this topic. Um, another thing you can do is leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or where wherever allows reviews, uh, along with the review. And in addition to that, there's one new way that you can help the podcast. I haven't really mentioned this much before, but if you've noticed, there are no ads at this point on this podcast. As of the day this is releasing, February 26th, I don't yet have a Patreon account. It's something that I'm considering. Um, Prior to this point, I really haven't had any means of asking for any kind of donations. Um, But just a few things, just so you know, this podcast is a labor of love. I am a team of one. I don't have a single assistant on this podcast. But there are some operating expenses, and they come completely out of pocket. And that's okay. I knew that going in. I think if this had been a type of show that I just did maybe 15, 20 episodes and said that was fun, I'll go ahead and hang it up. You know, a lot of podcasts actually don't even make it to nine episodes, so here we are at 38, and I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about that. I'm looking at a lot of guests that I want to get on the show, and I want to continue, uh, I want to get past the year anniversary, which will be at the end of June. I want to take this into 2022. I want to keep this going as long as possible. So if you have the means and it's something you feel led to do, there is now a donate button on my website at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. If you're looking at that website from a desktop, it's near the top of the page. And if you're looking at it on a, on a mobile app, it is near the bottom of the page. This content remains free, though. I don't want you to feel any obligation to give anything. Uh, just share with your friends. Uh, that is one great way to, again, help this podcast grow. But again, if you have the means, that option is now there. And I am extremely grateful for uh, everything that's there. I've already received a donation, and I just put that up today. Uh, so thank you for that and for, for any future donations that, that come in while you're leaving a donation, maybe hit that contact button and let me know what you'd like to have more of on the show. What kind of guests would you like? What kind of questions do you have of previous guests? Those are all things that I would love to explore. And I want to make sure that if, especially if you're giving to the show that I am serving the needs of you as the listener. Okay, there have been a couple of interviews that I've done already that I was tempted to split it up into two parts, but I I felt like I was able to edit it down 
to a single episode, albeit a long one. But there really wasn't anything that I could do this time around. The interview you're about to hear was recorded uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I talked to John Eldridge, and he contacted me soon after that and said, I, I thought of a point that I wanted to make to to add to that. And so we we reconnected to, to just add a little bit of content, but it actually became a whole separate conversation. So that's part two. Um, so I'm going to share that first interview that we had here in just a moment with John Eldridge. John is a keyboardist and a music director who lives in the Boston area. But we won't be talking very much about that because I have him on here because of his other business. He is the owner and manager of Stage Sounds. What is Stage Sounds? Well, we're going to be talking about that. But what it has to do with is something that anybody who's ever played keyboard for a show and had to change multiple sounds is something that they dread. It's called keyboard programming. It's probably for some shows, you may spend way more time programming your keys than you do actually playing the keyboard for the show. It's a long task, and not everybody who's skilled enough to play the keys has the patience nor the technical savvy to deal with the programming side of things. And so a lot of times that gets outsourced. Well, John is not any less frustrated than the rest of us, but he figured out that once he'd spent all this time doing programs, he could actually sell them to other music directors and, and the theaters that are doing shows. What is programming? Why is it so complicated? Why is it something that a lot of keyboardists are willing to go to a place like Stage Sounds or some other outsourcing company and download a file with everything already programmed and just hook up a laptop and just run it? We're going to talk about all of that and more into this really fascinating, mysterious world of keyboard programming. This is my first of two conversations with John Eldridge. John, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Um, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. We're going to be talking about something today that, for some of my listeners, that is those who play keyboard, it's going to be really intriguing. For everyone else, they may either be perplexed or, or not sure what's going on here. <laughs> we're, we're getting into the world of keyboard programming. <laughs> I'll definitely be perplexed. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, well, I got to say, as a keyboardist, programming can be perplexing. So uh, so I wanted to just throw that out there. Sometimes I, I feel like the the meat of the interview it doesn't come out right away. It's like uh, we're going to talk about other things, of course. We're going to talk about you know, your theater experience, your musical experience. Uh, but I think you, you uniquely can talk about the aspect of keyboard programming, which is something that uh, some of my guests before have talked about. That's something that I, I, I give that to somebody else, you know, <laughs> I'll play the keyboard or a music direct, but I don't want anything to do with that. And uh, I, we're, we're going to talk about what you've uh, a little later on in the show, what you've come up with to, um, help people like that. So, uh, so let's just start off with, uh, what would you be doing if we didn't have a pandemic and what are you doing during the pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, what I would be doing if there weren't any pandemic is, you know, probably similar to a lot of other keyboardists and music director types. Um, you know, I work with a variety of different groups here in the Boston area, uh, community theaters, uh, schools, youth groups, um, and of course, you know, several of the local regional theaters as well. You know, there's there's a lot of different things going on, and uh, usually, you know, any any other given year, I'm I'm pretty busy um, playing playing in pits, music directing. Uh, I do a lot of accompanying as a collaborative pianist with choruses and you know, um, soloists and all that stuff. Right. But obviously, none of that. <laughs> right. None of that really going on right now. Right. Um, and that's actually sort of led me to what's um, to putting together, you know, this company. Um, and it's, it's something that I've been doing for many years, actually, you know, sort of just as, as my own side business. And for those many years, I've also been putting off, you know, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the little things and the technical things that I haven't been able to get around to just because I haven't had time. Right. And that business <laughs> and now is now uh, with an excess of time. <laughs> and that business uh, is stage sounds, right? Yes. And that's yeah. called stage sounds. And I actually just put it together last year, finally, got an LLC and a new website and all of those fun technical things that I had been putting off for so long. Right. Um, and yeah, and it's basically started as a, as a keyword programming business. And, uh, and again, I've been doing that for many years, probably back to, oh, I don't know, I guess 2013 was the first time I started using main stage and using it in musicals. Right. And, and, you know, quickly after doing that, you know, you do, you put together one show and you realize, wow, I've sunk so many hours into this. <laughs> right. And then you realize I should probably do something to keep making some money with this stuff that I've done. Right. And uh, so, you know, as soon as I started programming shows, the first show I did was Shrek. Second show I did after that was Little Shop of Horrors. And I just realized, you know, these are popular shows that people are going to want. Um, and I very quickly found that people would, would pay me for them. You know, they would pay to rent them. I would, you know, essentially send them an agreement and say, okay, here's your here's your uh, license period and you can use this for the length of your show. And then, you know, it's right. It saves people a huge amount of time. As you said yourself, it's something where you look at some of these books and you go, Oh geez, that's like 200 different sounds. Well, you know, I, I was watching, I was watching the video feed as we were recording and I was seeing if my face showed anything when you said the word Shrek, <laughs> um, <laughs> because that was the show. Uh, my keyboard is still programmed for Shrek. That is what I, that was the show I was supposed to do in April of last year, so it's still ready. <laughs> uh, I don't think they're going to do that show, at, you know, at any point. But I can't tell you how many hours I spent programming Keyboard Two for yep. for Shrek into that, and and it was one of those things, you know, where you have I, there's one. Th I think I had five zones at one point. You know, it's like it's like here's right. two notes for the timpani, uh, here's one for. Um, you know, a glockenspiel, like, like just a, like five notes for that. And then here's, right, here's the right, trumpets, yeah. you know, and, and strings. And then of course, uh, like a pipe organ bass. I don't know. It's just, it was yeah, just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you had to do that because it was all on this one page and you kept coming back to it and, and so forth. And I've always done it the old school way. It's like, I, I have a, I have a chord chrome, uh, that I just, go to bank E uh, or sometimes no. <laughs> I, or, or go to the performance bank D or whatever it is. And, or, and, you know, just do a lot of type, punch this in, save and, and all that. But be, yeah, we're, we're going to get more into keyboard programming, <laughs> talking about that, but, uh, but yeah, so definitely want to come back to that, but let's, uh, 
let's go back in time a little bit. How did you get into music? Well, music. Oh, God, now we're going way back in time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, I would have to go all the way back to, you know, my mother as a child. Right. She was an opera singer. You know, mm. she sort of inspired my first, my love of music. Did you grow up in Boston? Yeah, just outside of Boston, okay. a town called Concord. Okay. Uh, Concord, Massachusetts, which uh, may, may be known to some people for the seat of the American Revolution. Right, one. right. I'm about to say, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that kind of rings a bell with like... Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, probably in your history books somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I grew up there. I spent my entire childhood there, went through the public schools there and everything. And my folks still live there. I still you know, go back there a lot now. Um and uh, yeah, you know, she was an opera singer, but we listened to, you know, there's a lot of music in our child, in our house growing up, jazz, classical, show tunes, right? You know, classic rock and R&B and all that good stuff. Right. Uh, so what, how, what got you started as a musician? Did you, did you play an instrument or did you sing? I did. I played in, I, my first, first thing was piano, as mm-hmm. a lot of us, a lot of us is. Yes. I didn't start lessons until I was about 10 years old, though. So it's pretty late for a lot of people. I know a lot of right of my fellow pianists started at a very young age and I didn't, mm-hmm. I would, you know, mess around a little bit as a kid, but you know, I didn't, I, it wasn't until I was 10. I had a friend I think who was, was playing. It was really good. And I was like, Oh, I want to be like him. Um, and I was also really obsessed with movie music. That was always a, a big, a big thing for me. John Williams. Oh yeah. Sure. Many people <laughs> of our generation and, and, and beyond. Yeah. Just had uh, his 89th and, birthday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, he did. A couple days ago. Happy birthday to John Williams. Of course. Yep. 89 god wow that's yeah. amazing <laughs> well i was just thinking i mean he was 88 when he was conducting when he was oh, conducting yeah. the score to the star wars episode 9 and i was just thinking that's just uh, just amazing to have the energy to right. work to orchestrate the way he does you know i mean or, or, so i'm gonna get off topic just for a little bit since, <laughs> since, we, since i got a fellow film composer and uh, film music fan you know on here with me you know, a lot of people when they hear john williams I, I think the first thing that comes to mind is catchy themes. You know, it's like you get like a, you know, everybody can hum the Harry Potter theme or uh, Indiana Jones or Star Wars. But sure. if you start, once you start studying music and, and the art of harmony and orchestration and get into what he's doing, um, it's it's almost mind boggling. I mean, there's a level of complexity that I think if they were honest, like most of your academic concert composers you know that 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 do like the really you know kind of high level symphonic music would be impressed with because it, there's okay. just so much intricacy going on uh, and i've i've never heard anybody who's played the music in an orchestra not just i mean they, they say two things they say it's a lot of fun but it is a lot of work <laughs> <laughs> incredibly hard right i've played a few of those you know piano celeste books you know for like the star wars suite or whatever in college. oh yeah it's it's no joke. No, I have a bit of a theory with that, by the way, and I, I'm one of those people that I don't think that the original Star Wars is one of his best scores. I I th- I think it's a great you know he's some it's some great thematic material, mm-hmm. um, but he had never worked with the London Symphony Orchestra before. He had never scored that type of film, and I think he was trying to figure some things out. But he learned a lot about the London Symphony Orchestra. So when he came back with The Empire Strikes Back, I think he did his best film yeah. score. And I'm inclined to agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think once he figured out what those trumpets could do, what that piccolo section could do, and really the whole orchestra, I think he's like, okay, well, we're, we're going to have fun now. <laughs> and that's just, and, this is, and, and what's really amazing to me is, 
there's no rehearsal for that stuff. They had to sight read it. All yeah, no, it. I think film. Some of the uh, session players in the film industry deserve, you know, huge credit for what they're able right. to do on a short period. Of time. Right. That may have to be like uh, that. May have to be like a second podcast. <laughs> Mus- musicians <laughs> who play oh, for yeah. films. That would be pretty neat. But I know sometimes they make appearances on film music podcasts. I assume that took you to a college of some kind and you studied music. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and obviously I studied, you know, for, well, when did I say I started at 10? Right. <laughs> I, did, I studied through most of school. Once I got to high school, I did, I tapered off of lessons a bit because I had gotten so interested in, you know, in other things, in musical theater. And I was playing with a jazz band in high school mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, doing all kinds of other, other things. And, um, eventually let that slide a little bit much to my parents chagrin but <laughs> right um there's so many other things going on it didn't really matter but yes i did eventually um go on to major in music in college i went to case western reserve university okay which is out in cleveland ohio uh, okay. and they had a really a really interesting um joint program with conservatory there in cleveland the cleveland institute of music so i was able to take my lessons and my theory classes and all that stuff at the conservatory basically with conservatory professors which was incredible right and then still continue the bulk of my music education and you know other general ed stuff at at the university which was which was nice you kind of had the best of both worlds that way right right and uh, cleveland was actually a really really fun city to fun city to go to college in you know it's one of those one of those american sleeper towns i think you know Really good food scene, good live music scene, even a pretty decent theater scene. You know, I, I went to see a lot of shows out there, too. Nice. Yeah. You know, one of the uh, music directors I haven't met that was in the Ask the Music Director series, he he lives in Cleveland. So. Oh, Matt Croft. Yeah. 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 <laughs> of course. I'm, uh, well, I'm very nice. familiar with him from the music directors group on Facebook. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. It's funny. I have so many of these people that I would call my friends who I've known for several years at this point, but I've literally right. never met. <laughs> oh that that's that's the world of social media and, I know, right? and it's always sometimes sometimes i'll know people on so, social media and then they'll rec somehow they'll recognize me in real life and i don't recognize them like <laughs> oh oh you're that person so, especially you know you when you have someone that doesn't like change your profile picture for like 10 years or something <laughs> like that <laughs> but uh, yeah that's another story yeah cleveland is yeah, I, I always think of uh ohio as being you know the state with the three big sea state sea cities right? yes. <laughs> you know exactly. and uh i've been to columbus i've been to cincinnati i've never been to cleveland but we should uh, check it out it's a good yeah. it's a good town it's a good town yes. we actually we went around to all three of those cities because as music ed majors we would go to the you know the conferences every year and it would you know cycle through each of the three right. three big cities basically every every couple of years so we yeah. got to spend time in those towns which is fun I do think about Cleveland every so often because I, I do devotedly watch a Christmas story every single year. And ah, I was yes. filmed there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always think of that, those scenes downtown of like, hey, I go, I walked through there. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, so when did you first get into theater? Well, let's see. Theater. Uh, I think, I guess high school, you know, like most of us, we kind of, fall in with the high school high school drama crowd mm-hmm. it sort of happened in like phases for me right <laughs> i didn't you know i had a lot of friends who were doing shows in middle school we did do shows in middle school but I, I didn't really get into it then but i did have my seventh grade music teacher we did do a unit on west side story mm-hmm. and that really i think changed my changed my life a lot because right. you know i i had seen the movie with my parents at some point you know as a kid mm-hmm. and then she showed it again in school and we did some analysis of the music and i was like whoa like this is not normal music this right. is like off the charts crazy stuff 
totally changed, you know, I don't want to say changed my opinion, like I had a bad opinion of musical theater before that, but it changed my opinion in a way that, you know, I I had no idea that that kind of music could be like that. Right. And, um, you know, I was sort of, I started an obsession with the score. I'm still obsessed with it. Everybody loves it. You know, I actually ended up writing my senior thesis in undergrad on it. (laughs) Right. But, you know, that show really, it really stuck with me and sort of, you know, set me on, you know, my path to musical theater. But once I did get to high school, um, as a freshman, I did, um, I joined the the stage crew, basically. That was my first experience with right. doing a show was as a stagehand, you know, just, you know, running the sets and doing scene changes and stuff like that. And eventually, uh, as a sophomore, I was actually, we did West Side Story mm-hmm. at high school. We did a, did a full, full out production of it, which is incredible. Um, you know, we had a student orchestra and everything that actually was really, really good. Nice. And I actually auditioned for it and was on stage. I was one of the one of the sharks. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Dance the ballet and everything. Um, yeah. And so that was that was a lot of fun, too. And it wasn't until my junior year that I actually got a chance to play in a pit. Right. Um, which was a lot of fun. And the first show that I ever played in a pit for was Little Shop of Horrors. Ah. And we did, you know, it was the original like 1982 version, the old school version. With the very hard to read (laughs) score. (laughs) Very hard to read. Um, Yeah, those chicken scratch. I remember the one that was the worst was was that that patter song at the end of Act One. Now it's just the gas, and they're just trying to scribble in all these words, and it's like turning them on its side, and it can't fit them in. Yeah, Yeah, that score is is quite notorious. Little Shop was the last... the last full show with a live band that I did, um, you know, before all this went down. And I remember in rehearsal, I was getting so frustrated. I would say something like, let's go to rehearsal D and they Mm. wouldn't have a rehearsal D (laughs) they'd have, they'd have C and E or their D is in the wrong spot. And, (laughs) and, and, and and I'd ask them things like how many measures of rest do you, do you have? Like someone's out. Like, um, like maybe the percussionist is not playing or something like that. How many re- measures of rest do you have? And they'll say, well, uh, I have 11. And there's, well, there should be 12 measures there. <laughs> there's something missing. So it's a really messy score yeah, that they, that they dramatically cleaned up in the, I'm not sure the year 2003. Oh, sure, yeah, the, uh, 2003, I think. For the yeah. Broadway, yeah. Yeah. Cause I yeah, to, I've uh, done both. I've done both. And it's, it's, it's yeah. really, really nice to be able to see that on a, on a nice typeset page. Now uh, there, sure. there's a high school in Pennsylvania that asked me, uh, that hired me to, um, add strings to that. That's that strings don't come with it, but they, uh, they were using high school musicians and they said they had really talented string players. So they wanted, uh, two violins, viola, um, cello, uh, and of course, they are, the bass is already there. So I just added basically that a string quartet to uh, awesome. what was there. Unfortunately, I don't. I I don't. I think they're they're they were supposed to be doing that in late March. So I don't know that they ever got to do it. But <laughs> that's a shame. Well, it's such a fun show, and I've done I've done both versions of it a few times over the years, and it's right. That's always one of my favorites to come back to, just for you know, just for old times' sake, because it's right. the first the first one and done it so many times since then that it's always a lot of fun to come back to. Yeah. I was just thinking about a couple of things when you mentioned, you know, West Side Story. I mean, the first one, first thing is just how amazing must it be to write a musical that ear training professors will use for <laughs> as the as the main example for two intervals. It's like it's it's the interval to go to if you're trying to describe the tritone. 
<laughs> because of Maria Cha Cha and um, and also the opening, and then it's the interval for a minor seventh, you know, because oh, sure, the, for uh, for somewhere, yeah, for yeah. somewhere. Um, I I often use it. I have I have a few composition students, and I often use it uh, the very end of the show, the very the very last few measures. You have that little da da, you know, it's like a C major chord, and then there's like a G flat in the bass. Yeah, that that comes right little, after, and then he does it again, and then he does it a third time, and he doesn't bring in the bass, and he just he just, he just lets that linger, and you're waiting yeah, for actually. it, and it doesn't happen, and then you're like, ah, so this is the <laughs> end, and and he just holds that chord out until you accept it, and so I I often use that as an example of like how you can kind of manipulate mm -hmm. uh, expectations and so forth. So yes. it's a yeah. really great show. But the other thing is that it also kind of uh you talked about how the movie didn't didn't make you excited for the show but doing the show see you know it, it did it got yeah, you into the music yeah, no, i had a similar experience with les mis yeah. you know so les mis um you know <laughs> sure. i knew the songs some of the songs like i knew on my own and i dreamed a dream um before i ever saw the show and but uh i i i never got into the show I watched the movie when it came out in 2012 and, yeah. and I was like, yeah, it's good. It's okay. Um, but I was supposed to do the music directing the next year. And then when we got into that and we had a, you know, had a great cast, we auditioned 91 and we cast 35 and we had a 13 piece orchestra and, and just hearing that live come out and, and, and then seeing how it was staged, I was like, Oh, this is so much better. Yeah. <laughs> it's like th this is what this was made yeah. for. You know, it's quite yeah. a quite a bit different. So, well, let me just ask you. So, uh, I have talked to someone before who was from Boston, and um, he was very glowing about the Boston theater scene. Would would that be your ex uh, your experience as well? Yeah. No, I think I think it's a really it's a really um, it's very, it's varied, I guess, is the word right. I would use. It's, there's a ton of different stuff going on, which is what makes it really fun. Right. Um, you know, there's obviously, there's several, you know, really high quality regional theaters uh, in the area. Um, there's a ton of schools, you know, if Boston is known as, you know, college town USA, basically, for good reason. Right. I think something like, you know, three quarters of the population during the school year is college students or something like that. It's absurd. Right. But um, obviously tons of colleges, universities, um, and lots of high schools and middle schools even that are doing doing shows basically throughout the year. Um, and you add that together with the community theaters. Mm -hmm. um, most of like the local towns have, have a community theater, have a youth theater. There's so many of them mm -hmm. um, that there's just so much going on. And that, you know, creates obviously tons of opportunities. You know, there's lots of opportunities for me to music direct, to play in pits. Most people are using live orchestras, which is great. They may not be huge, but <laughs> right. they're, they're hiring live musicians, which is great. Um, the flip side of that, you know, Boston being a college town, is that there's lots of college students here who mm -hmm. are willing, you know, to work for free or for cheap, which right. does sort of tend to cut into the value of professional professionals yeah um, and i think most people would would share that observation you know that it's not it's not new york or la right because you know those those towns are so so much more weighted to that end of the spectrum i guess right but it's you know that difference is you know it's i think it's a double-edged sword but i i've always loved it around here just for the you know again for the 
the difference of the landscape and so many things going on and you know not just in the in the theater world but in the music world as well you know there's lots of lots of live music right uh, i think also one thing that probably helps with a town like boston is that there are a lot of things outside of the pit for musicians so it's not like this is the only opportunity for them i mean you've got a world class a symphonic orchestra and a world class pops orchestra, and uh, right. you know, and I and I assume you've, you know, there's probably a lot of other things. There's is there an opera company in Boston? Yeah, there's you know, there's several. You know, there's um, you know, in Boston, outside of Boston, even you know, there's smaller smaller groups that even even do operas. You know, my mother actually worked with a company in, in Concord um, doing yeah over the, over the years, and there's you know lots of different things. The Handel and Haydn Society. There's lots of choirs and vocal performance groups um and yeah you know period music symphonic music like you said there's oh, yeah. the big the big name big name orchestras and there's tons of smaller ones as well right um i've got a friend who's starting his own starting his own orchestra and stuff like that you know it's yeah it's a lot, a lot yeah. of fun visiting boston is definitely on my a list of things to do uh i just i hadn't got up north much before a few years ago when i, I started doing a few things professionally in new york um, and, but I've still never been north of New York, you know, at least on the East coast, you know, I've been to Chicago on the other end, but I've oh, never been to Boston. You gotta get up here, man. Oh yeah. <laughs> the chowder oh, yeah. is high for, I will tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Unlike clam chowder. Oh yeah. Uh, it, it's actually, it's kind of funny. I, I have, a several o- older siblings, um, that, and all of them were born when my dad was active in the air force and he was once stationed on Cape Cod and, oh. um, and it always amuses me because, um, you know, my mom's no longer alive, but I can't think of anybody who is more Southern than my Georgia mom. <laughs> and just kind of imagining her in the winter in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. That's just so yeah. funny. Yeah, <laughs> Cape Cod is lovely in the summertime. I go down there all the time, but right. I will tell you in the winter, it is not a place you want right. <laughs> Yeah, it's also the state where one of my favorite movies of all time was filmed, that being Jaws. You know? Yes, yes, very famous. I've been to those beaches. Oh yeah, <laughs> swimming that water. It is not, not, not dangerous. Right. <laughs> Although they still do, they still do get plenty of sharks down there. They get right. You know, they and they do a good job now, actually, of, of educating people about it. And nice, keeping an eye on things. And it's, um, it's, <laughs> I say, I guess one thing before we come back to keyboard programming, I did want to talk about. So you you do have a, you know, you've you've talked, you've done a lot of things in theater. Uh, you have a, you had a gig though, in uh, New York City off Broadway called Ride the Cyclone, oh, oh, and you're credited oh. as a program keyboard programming assistant. So yeah. I think this is where I want to really get into it. Um, Let's do it. Well, I do want to talk about talk about the gig, but let's just talk about keyboard programming because I know that. If if they haven't checked out of this episode already, there's going to be some people. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, and I and I would just say to them, come on, if you if you stuck with, uh, you know, an episode where an oboe is just talking about making reads, you know, <laughs> this is kind of this is kind of the thing here. Uh, I got into theater later in life. I was in my 30s before I started doing theater, but I did all kinds of gigs as a pianist, and I was so used to the venue had a piano. You show mm-hmm. up, you play it. Ten seconds after you're done playing, you're out the door. You know, it's like that's all there is to it. You know, um, 
when you start bringing in keyboards and you have to, especially if it's their, your keyboard and you got to load it in and out. Well, I mean, you're, you're not just leaving. You've got, you've got, yeah. you got to allow time for that. But then there is what you might have to do at home and that is programming keyboards. So, um, so what are we talking about? You know, just for those who might not even, you know, have done anything in the theater pit, what are we talking about? We talk about programming keyboards. Well, it is sort of, a- I guess a, a bit of a misnomer, you know, we don't really do a whole lot of programming anymore. Right. You know, obviously originally there was a significant more of a, <laughs> more of a technical aspect to this as we were dealing with very early synthesizers, you know, right. And um, you know, you would actually be programming on those things and doing, you know, doing some more high level technical work nowadays. It's, you know, I think you probably mentioned the software main stage, earlier on in the program, but uh, that's, that's sort of the industry standard. Right. Um, largely because it's so easy to use. Right. Um, and unlike, you know, having to do things on hardware keyboard where every keyboard's a little different and everything might be in a different place. Yes. It's standardized and it's software, which means you can sit at home, you can you know, do your work, you can send it anywhere else in the world. You know, you can send it to a client halfway across the world. You can send it, you know, one thing, you know, that we made a lot of use of actually working on Ride the Cyclone in New York was a local area network because we right. could sit out in the audience and I could log on with with screen sharing and just manipulate things in real time as we're listening to the band. Nice. You, know, you don't have to <laughs> go over his shoulder and be p- punching buttons. Right. Um, which is, you know, software makes it, makes it, totally different and a lot easier and a lot faster nowadays, which is, which is good. Right. Let me back up. I want to get a little bit more basic than that. Um, so, um, yeah. So for, for, for the benefit of those who like, who don't play keyboard, what we're talking about is some shows I've played where it's piano sound the whole time, <laughs> but, uh, and, or it might be okay. Piano sound, change to strings, go back, uh, play, play an organ sound on this song. And a lot of times that's just as simple as, you know, just, you have a few buttons you have saved, <laughs> but I, I I don't even know. It'd be it'd be interesting to know like the history of keyboard book development when this started to happen. But at some point, keyboard two books and then later keyboard one books became a thing like this. Where okay, um, if you're playing from middle C up, that is piano and strings if you're playing um i don't know c six and up and by the way that's something else we can talk about i i know c4 is middle c but in keyboard programming (laughs) c3 is middle c (laughs) Um, (laughs) but anyway but yeah never never mind that but like two octaves (laughs) of a middle c needs to be glockenspiel added on or something like that and then if it's below maybe maybe c3 I'll, I'll go ahead and use it. C2 to C3 is piano only, but below C2 is maybe strings. And maybe those strings are supposed to sound three octaves higher than what you're playing. The, this is not anything that you can find <laughs> on a keyboard. You have to... Yeah, you're first, not just going find, to find a button for that. <laughs> so, so I guess the very first thing that you have to do is you have to look at your keyboard that you have and say, will this do this? And I've got one that will, and I've got yep. one that won't. <laughs> I've got a rehearsal piano <laughs> a that I've picked. <laughs> right? um, so if I'm doing this on my, my Korg, and, and, I, and this is a midline Korg, I've never had you know a, a reason to 
get a more top model at this point. But what I have to do is I, I have to go find the the bank that I'm allowed to program things in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and often what I'm doing is I'm finding the sounds on other banks. If it's just a single sound and I'll just copy it over to patch yep. number two. And then when I go to patch number three, find that sound. And then, you know, if I'm doing the score, I've got to mark it up. I got to say, okay, this is number three. This is number four. Yeah, that's the other. Five. That's the other important step. People um, forget is, Yeah, you got to mark the book then once you've actually <laughs> set up the sounds. Right. Well, I guess in a way, it's it's it's, you know, I, I I say it's a misnomer because we don't do much programming anymore. In a way, it's 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 sound design. Yes. It, it's 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 coming up with. You know, you, you look at the book and the orchestrator has written, you know, a keyboard book and calls for various mm-hmm. sounds. And you have to, you know, find the appropriate sounds, which depending on the show, you know, we've talked about a show like Shrek, which uses for the most part, you know, a lot of symphonic sounds, you know, strings and brass and percussion, in addition to, you know, some traditional keyboard sounds like piano and you know, right. electric pianos like the Rhodes and the Wurlitzer and some organs and stuff like that. And yeah. then there are more synth-heavy shows, you know, something like Mamma Mia or something like The Wedding Singer or something like um, like Cats. That's actually one of the first, I would say, probably the first big keyboard programming show from right. 1980, 1981, maybe. Um, right. Five. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and that was one of the first shows that made heavy use of synthesizers. And from there, you would get more really specific instructions. You might get like just a specific, you know, name, you know, that right. may mean nothing to you. It's just one, the name of the sound on the keyboard. Or you may get something like, you know, you know, sine wave, or you may get right. something, you know, that's like warm pad. <laughs> I, I, I tell you a book that, that I've only heard the cast recording. I don't know if I could do it live on the technology I have. And that's the um, um, American Psycho. Uh, do you know anything about that show? I don't. Not a lot. I've heard a little bit. Oh, I'm just going to listen to the cast recording and just figure out what would you do with that? Because wow. there's, it's very synth heavy. There's, uh, there's a lot of obviously live loops going on. <clears throat> and I, and I guess, uh, you know, I guess that's another software that comes in. Uh, I assume that in addition to main stage, which is an Apple, um, pro, you know, product. And, um, I guess a lot of people at that level are using Ableton Live or something like that. Yeah, actually, yeah, that that yeah. that's that could be a, that could be a fun segue back to the ride the cyclone because right. that was um, that was sort of the division of duties there when we right. were working on that show in New York. When that was why I was I was the synth programmer assistant. That was my credit, but my um, my supervisor Jeff Martyr, who was the you know the electronic music designer for the production, mm-hmm. he was basically focused on the Ableton work the entire time. So I did I did all the keyboard programming for the show. Right, <laughs> right. It was compared to the amount of work that was required for the Ableton for that, it was fairly minimal. But, yeah, you know, I do not. I have not ever had to use Ableton, uh, so I I don't have the experience I've, with that. Yeah, I have very little experience with it. I actually yeah. did a little uh, took a little class with Scott Wasserman last year, who was he's the uh, he did the Ableton designs for Hamilton, actually, and he yeah. did. Uh, he got offered a little class to the music director's Facebook group, which was really cool. And I learned a little bit about it. Took a couple classes, right. but it's such it's such a deep, deep program that I, I you know, I'm still very much in the <laughs> in the kiddie pool area. Right. Um, so when I was doing Shrek, uh, I have to think about when this was. Now this was very. Uh, I mean, it was almost a year ago. It was February 2020. I was programming. Uh, probably taking uh, you know a, 
a couple of hours each day for about a week and a half <laughs> programming it. And I was on song number three and just fed up. And I just, I said, I'm going to go to Google and I'm going to see what are other keyboardists doing? Because I never really had thought about it. I hadn't really, I don't think I was even on the theater music directors book or group yet. Uh, I wasn't talking to what other people were doing, but I started Googling and first, the first thing that came up was main stage. That was the first thing. Um, and, and I'll tell you the second thing that came up in a moment. But what is, so what is it that main stage does that helps <laughs> keyboard players? Sure. Well, what main stage was originally actually was part of Logic, um, which mm-hmm. is, you know, Apple's sort of proprietary DAW, the digital audio workstation, and still is. Right. Um, Around, I want to say maybe 2010, 2011, Mainstage, they first came out with it in 20, 2007. Mm-hmm. And a few years after that, they realized, oh, this is so popular as its own thing that they just branched it off. And now instead of you know getting it as part of Logic, you can buy it as its own software and it's $29. <laughs> right. So that right there, that number is a big part of why it's so popular is because it's so cheap. Right. And what you get with that is really, really incredible. You get essentially the full Logic sound library, mm-hmm. um, which includes not only a ton of sampled instruments, you know, stuff like pianos and strings and you know acoustic orchestral stuff, but you get these full featured synthesizer plugins um, that really you know make it an incredibly deep um, and usable program right um, and i assume there's um emulator there's an electric piano emulator a clav emulator all these modelers that work really really well and if you know how to set them up and you know do a little bit of do a little bit of you know sound design on them you can really really go far with it um, right and and i was just thinking um if i'm not mistaken now so this obviously you know in addition to you know, the keyboard, you, you have to have a, a laptop and a stand for it and all that. Um, and, and also it's a couple things that help in addition to your, um, your sustain pedal and a volume control pedal, you end up having a patch change pedal as well. You got to remember which is which. Usually, I, usually very helpful. Yes. Yeah. That's <laughs> like, I, usually if I'm going to mix them up, I'm going to mix up the volume pedal with the patch pedal. It's like, cause, cause I put those on my left foot. <laughs> right foot stays on the damper yeah. or in the, yeah. on the sustain. Yeah. There's, there's some of those shows. Shrek's definitely one of them where some of those patch changes come so fast and furious that you just, you, you're not going to have time to use a hand for it. Right. And I was just, uh, but I was, I was thinking if you've got a laptop, if you've got main stage, um, like I have the, the full native instrument complete library. I imagine you can use those, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And main stage is great because it's, it's not just, you know, the sounds, but it's a platform, right? A platform that you can, like you said, you can use other plugins like contacts. Um, people have stuff from Omnisphere, Arturia, um, all kinds of fun stuff like that. I have the complete, nice. you know, as well. Some of those are a little trickier to use in live performance because they're not exactly designed for that. And that's what main stage really is. You know, it's sort of like a live version of Logic. Right. Um, you know, Logic, if Logic is for you know, studio work and recording and all of that stuff, main stage is for setting up stuff to use in performance. And it's sort of like the two sides of that coin. Right. Um, the second thing that came up when I was fed up with you know, three songs into Shrek and, you know, finding it about main stage and just that, that a lot of people are doing that now. 
Um, I came across a website, and I don't think it was yours. I think it was somebody else's, but it was, they had about like a hundred something shows and it was like, download this main stage file. Um, so, so that you can just use that. And, and I, and I, and I won't, I won't say how much it was cause I, I could be wrong on that. Um, but I do believe though, that is what your business does, right? Stage sound. So if, yeah, so if I exactly. wanted to play Shrek and, and I hadn't already spent all those hours, uh, but have you ever like timed it? How many hours does it take to do a show? Uh, I, I stopped doing it after a while because it got so depressing. Right. But yeah. I think the last time I did keep track of it um, was for Mamma Mia when I was doing Mamma Mia. And I think it was over 100 hours to do yeah. four keyboards for that show. Yeah. Um, and it's so, a lot. So let's, just, it's just, <laughs> so let's just say that, you know, you're normally responsible for your keyboard. That's 25 hours. Um you know, I mean, I think all of us, if we're, you know, self-employed, we need to take the value of opportunity costs kind yes. of seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are some shows that, that I've that I've music directed that don't pay that much, and and I think of, um, like, uh, I mean, are you willing to share what like to if if I was wanting like the keyboard two book for Shrek, just the files, like, do you you know what that about? What cost that would we be? started at two hundred and fifty dollars, basically. Yeah. And I, I sort of, I sort of made that, you know, the idea because that's sort of, it does end up being somewhere around probably at least ten hours a book. Yeah. You multiply that by say twenty five bucks an hour, and it's two hundred fifty dollars. Right. Uh, and I think that's a pretty reasonable, you know, reasonable. Right. Oh, and I and I just think about that. I mean, I probably. I probably spent 20 hours on that. So if you think about exactly. that, I mean, that's like, is that worth $10 an hour? And and it probably is, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I mean, because I can go, you know, make many times more than that if I, just, you know, just teach a student <laughs> during oh. that time, teach a couple of students. Yeah, so, it's really just about what your own time is worth. Right. You know? um, it It is a challenge, I think, for some shows where, you know, the the music director flat fee is not that much. But at the same time, um, it, I think it, it definitely is something where if you're able to negotiate, you know, a fair fee, it's certainly worth take, taking a cut of that. Um, and actually, um, uh, you know, just recently I talked to Mike Lasley, um, who was on episode number, I have to think about it, episode 35. And, uh, he, he mentioned how he is a member of a community theater board and, and, uh, and having that music director savvy on that board, one of the things he said is that there's there's a budget for the show that's separate from the music director fee that goes into what the needs of the keyboards, you know, so that the music director doesn't have to spend that time programming exactly. the keyboards, you know, and so and that's really that's really the bottom line is that it needs to it needs to get up the ladder so that people at that level understand it, people at the yeah. level of the board at the producer level, because it shouldn't be something where the keyboardists themselves are having to do it or the keyboardists themselves are having to find me and pay me to rent my stuff. I always tell people when they find me, I say, okay, you guys, you should not be the one paying for this. You need to go to your producer, your director, whoever it is and tell them if they don't, if they can't do it now, that's fine, but they need to know that it exists so that they budget for this, you know, increase in, you know, in budget for next year, because it's, it's just a fact of life for contemporary productions. Like I said, since 1980, basically, starting with Cats, most of these contemporary shows are going to have at least one keyboard book that 
consists of stuff like this. Yeah, and I would just say that, um, you know, to, to those who are on theater boards that are making decisions, you know, basically, if you have a keyboard book, you're essentially like, it's like paying one extra person for exactly. one week. So like if you have a two or three week show or more than that, you're really just paying that one time for that one week. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's about, you know, that's about what a person's going to earn on a weekend. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm giving non-Broadway rates, you know, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> something like that. So, uh, yeah, certainly a really good deal. Um, so yeah, So stage sounds, what are some of the shows that you have? Uh, it, the catalog has sort of exploded in this past year. That's when one of the great, actually, silver linings of the pandemic is I've been able to finally really sit down and start hacking out some of you know the stuff I've been meaning, meaning to do. I think at this time last year, I had probably about 30 shows mm-hmm. in my catalog. Uh, and since then, I've roped in a few of my colleagues who are working with me now to add a few of their designs to the collection. So it's not all exclusively my work anymore. Right. Most of the big name shows are because those are the ones that I started with. Um, but I've brought a few other people on board who are, you know, equally talented keyboard programmers as me. Um, and we've grown that catalog to about 110 now. So there's 110 different shows. What are some catalog. of your best sellers? Some of the best sellers, Shrek has always been one. Mm-hmm. Um, not, I think I think the burp and fart sound effects are a reason for that. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, Shrek's a big one. Little Shop of Horrors has always been a big one. Mm-hmm. Spelling Bee has been a big one. That has a really, really complicated synthesizer part. Mm-hmm. Um, Mama Mia was a huge one when that finally came out. Right. Um, let's see. Yeah. I, I would say those are those are those are the biggies. Nice. Uh, and are there other services that Stage Sounds offers besides um, besides keyboard programming files? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing that we started doing is one of one of the other guys that I brought on board, my friend Chris, um, is a percussionist. He's my go-to drummer and percussionist here that I play with all the time, basically. Mm-hmm. And he does a lot of the same stuff for percussion, mm-hmm. believe it or not. Nice. Now that's sort of a different animal, you know. We look at keyboard programming, and it's sort of it sort of just is what it is. You know, you need these sounds to you know play the score. Right. Percussion is more, you know. He does this more for space saving reasons, um, you know. But he has we he has a whole slew of um, titles in the catalog as well that he he has percussion programming for. Um, some of the shows are similar to keyboard programming in that you do have some like a electronic effects that you need to be able to trigger and stuff like that but for other shows it's just it's helpful for him to digitize as much as possible to save space to save on volume we did a production of pippin a couple of years ago where you know we didn't have a ton of room for the pit but we needed to squeeze 11 people in there Mm -hmm. and we used all of his gear for drums and percussion basically and went fully electronic on everything and it saved a ton of space it made mixing it a lot easier Mm -hmm. um and those are things that might be more not so much appealing to a professional because I think professional percussionists for the most part are capable of, you know, sourcing their own instruments and creating their own setups. It's sort of part of the art of you know, doing pit percussion. Right. Doing, you know, some of, some of your listeners have found out already. Right. Uh, but, you know, I think for students, maybe for, you know, mm-hmm. high schoolers who are just starting to get into this, it's, that's a really tough part of it. And especially if you don't have a lot of the larger instruments or if you don't have room for them, it can be helpful to have, you know, a, a more, uh, elegant you know condensed 
electronic solution. Right. So he's got like a mallet cat. He rents up that stuff. He's got, you know, pads and all kinds of fun stuff like that. Nice. And then actually, believe it or not, one of the other areas that we're starting to get into, we haven't quite got into this yet, is guitar. Hmm. Um, and that's, again, sort of like something that I think might be more appealing to younger younger musicians, you know, again, because guitarists are so particular about tone. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, the books, again, contemporary books can be so specific about what they want. You know, they're asking for specific delays and effects and pedals and all these things, which if you don't have all of that equipment can be difficult to do. Now, there are obviously there are things nowadays like the Fractal and the Helix, which are like those modular all-in-one boards. Um, but again, you know, students may not have any of that stuff. So having a main stage solution might be might be appealing to them. These are these things we're still sort of getting into. Right. You know, keyboard programming has always been the primary primary focus, but right. percussion and guitar is starting to starting to emerge as part of the part of the other side of it here. The other thing that we started getting into um, just about six months ago um, during the pandemic is is creating backing tracks mm -hmm. um, because so many people have been in the admittedly unfortunate situation of not being able to have live music. Right. And I, I'll admit I'm one of them. Right. Um, I did one of the community theaters that I work with here in, in town did a production of Adam's family last fall as like their first and only thing of, of the COVID period last year. And we did it outside at a castle, which was really cool. Mm -hmm. um, and traditionally this group, you know, this is, I have, this is, this is a group where I'm the resident music director. Right. Um, called Kentucky Players. I've been there for several years. And they, you know, the reason I work with them is because they have such high respect for music. And by high respect, I mean high budget. Right. <laughs> um, and they've always, you know, really put put their money where their mouth is. And I really respect that. But obviously having hemorrhaged so much last year, we were not in a situation where we could play, pay for the full 12 pieces for Adam's family. Right. Nor were we in a situation where we could fit them. You know, right. we were outside, but we still had limited space and we had to be socially distanced and all of those concerns. So we could only do six. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was sort of faced with a quandary. Either I rewrite the entire score for six players, right. which I did not want to do. <laughs> right. Or I can pre-record half of them mm -hmm. um, and use a click track and play along with the rest in performance, which is what we nice. did. And it ended up working really well. I'd done it a couple of times for shows before, but that was the first time where I had really like full out done like the whole score and it was kind of work. Right. And again, it was one of those situations where I was like, okay, I've done this. I should probably see if I can market this to people after the fact. Right. So, yeah. So I was just, we didn't really talk much about any of your shows other than ride the cyclones, a lot of your experiences. So that might be, that might be a second interview down the line. We'll get into that. But I, I thought what you had to offer with just your, your business and, and just this whole kind of demystifying this process of keyboard programming was, was something yeah. that was really valuable to have you on today. Um, so let's just, uh, let's conclude this. We'll wrap it up by just uh, asking where can people find stage sounds and where can people follow you? Uh, well, I do have a personal page, web page, which for many years was where I was running the business from as well. Right. JohnEldridgeMusic.com. Um, but as of last year, I did create a separate, I've finally got a new new home for the website or for the business, which is stage-sounds. We couldn't get just stage-sounds, one word. It was right. so 
<laughs> but it's stage-sounds.com. Right. Uh, and we also have a Facebook Facebook page for that business as well, which you can find at Stage Sounds. Great. I pump that into the search bar. Awesome. All right. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a ton of fun, David. I really appreciate it. And that concludes episode number 38. And again, next week will be episode number 39. It comes out on March 5th, and it's going to be John again. It's going to be a shorter episode than this time around. It was long enough that it needed its own episode, but it is shorter than our first conversation. And we're going to be talking, of course, more about keyboard programming. But we really get into keyboard programming as a history and also a little bit more into... Uh, how it became so complicated, and why it has become so necessary to invest in some type of a programming skill or, again, just resign yourself that uh, I don't have time for this <laughs> and uh, I'm going to let somebody like John do this for me. Honestly, this is just my personal opinion here, but as far as sequels go, I think the second conversation is actually even better than the one we had today. It, uh, the one we had today was great, but I thought we really got into good, some good stuff for part two. So that's my way of saying, please come back to check that out. If this fascinated you at all, definitely hear the rest of our conversation next week, March 5th, episode 39, here on Life in the Pit. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or Twitter and Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a huge thank you to Mark Parolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. You can find out more about the podcast, leave a donation, or leave feedback at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast please rate and review on the apple podcast app and please share with your friends thank you for listening